Well, good morning to all of you. It is an honor and joy to be here in the circle with you this morning on what will be my last day in the pulpit until Labor Day. So I am going to try and finish strong, take a a brief respite from preaching and prepare for a series that we are already scoping out on the life story of Elijah in the fall. And I'm very excited about this new series we're going to be doing uh, from the uh, book of Kings in the Old Testament. And you will be amazed by the many ways in which that story uh, connects to the story of our lives today. So uh, thank you so much for uh, praying for me as I prepare over these coming weeks uh, for that new series. And I also want to just say a really warm personal welcome to all of you who are uh, here as veterans in the life of our church family and those of you who are coming as newcomers today. And if you're joining us online, we consider you part of our family every bit as much and are thrilled that you can be with us and hope and pray that all of us have already met God's grace in this place. I want to invite you to read with me this morning a passage of Scripture that comes to us from the seventh chapter of the Gospel according to St. Mark. And um, it's a tradition that we have observed from time to time. I'm going to invite you to stand for the reading of the Gospel. Would you do that with me today? It'll get some oxygen on our uh, bodies and air in our lungs. Uh, And if you need to remain seated, please feel the freedom to do that. Mark chapter 7, let us hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us at verse 24. Jesus left that place, and that place was Jerusalem, and he went to the vicinity of Tyre, which was quite a journey. It involved traveling out to the coast, following the coast of the Mediterranean north, all the way to an area that we would now locate in southern Lebanon, about 25 miles south of modern-day Syria. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know it. Yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. We just imagine baptizing parents this morning, the love we have for our kids. And when they're struggling in any way, just how it wrecks us and how much we long for help. This is the, the scene here. Uh, here. And um, the woman was a Greek, we're told, and born in Syrian Phoenicia, which would have been a little bit north of this location. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. And then Jesus said this, and this is what we're going to key in on today in in the study. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Wow, a very arresting statement. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Have any of you had a chance to either watch personally or hear about a new video series called The Chosen? 
Have any of you heard about this? You can get it for free, at least the first season on Amazon Prime. But for those who may not be familiar with it at all, let me tell you that, that the reason it is creating a stir is because it is probably the most engaging, imaginative, and compelling retelling of the gospel stories ever made. It's an extraordinary artistic work unpacking the story of Jesus and his disciples. And one of the reasons why people are loving it so much, and I will say this to be true of me as well, is because the Jesus that they portray in this series is very much the Jesus I imagine. He is a person of incredible warmth and tenderness and kindness. He's a person with an extraordinarily magnetic personality and amazing capacity to discern what's going on with the people right in front of him and, and, and a responsiveness to the needs of the moment that make him so accessible. He's the kind of figure that you think, even if I'm not a particularly religious kind of person, and maybe I don't even go in for religion at all, you think to yourself, I would follow him. I don't know about all of the church stuff, I would follow him. I would follow this kind of Jesus. And one of the things that makes this particular approach to telling the story of Jesus is just how brilliantly they maintain the tension between the divinity and mystery and transcendence of Jesus and the imminence and the humanity of Jesus. This Jesus is so like us. This Jesus is so aware of and connected to daily human experience, you instinctively trust him. And, and truly, there, there is a lot of imaginative license that's taken in the Chosen series at various places. I don't think anything heretical, but certainly imagination exercise, filling in the gaps of the story. But one of the places where it is dead solid, right on with what the Bible says at every single point, is this reflection of the humanity of Jesus. We talked a little bit about this just last week when we described Jesus coming over the breast of the, uh, the crown of the hill of the Mount of Olives and seeing Jerusalem and weeping. In the Gospels, we meet a weeping God. We meet somebody who feels the pain of life as human beings feel the pain, maybe even more so. We're told in the Gospels that, that Jesus uh, got tired, that Jesus uh, got thirsty, that Jesus slept. We're told that Jesus walked and that he sat and that he rose and that he got irritated at certain people and that he took delight in other people. But I think it's really fascinating to note in all of the reading that we do in the New Testament about the humanity of Jesus, we never once ever hear the statement, and Jesus laughed. Curious, isn't it? What more human activity is there than laughter. What do we make of this? Is this some kind of statement that we may one day find ourselves standing before a humorless God? A God who looks at all of the follies and the foibles of our lives and says with cold detachment, I was not amused. Is that the message of the scriptures to us here? Well, if you read the Bible carefully, you will also note that nowhere does it say, and Jesus chewed his food. I don't think that we are to take from that fact the idea that Jesus swallowed his meals whole. 
In fact, I suspect that there were so many things that Jesus did so very regularly that the gospel writers felt no need to mention them explicitly. In fact, breathing doesn't get much airtime. But we know that Jesus did a lot of that. It does record, however, when he breathed his last. I think this was the case when it came to Jesus laughing. It's, It's why I love this particular picture of Jesus. I keep it in my office. It was given to me by a friend in this church. It's the laughing Jesus. It's the first thing I see when I walk into my office uh, every single week. And it's good for me because I can take life very seriously. I can get very uptight at times. And it's wonderful to remember the gracious face of a laughing Jesus. If that is true, however, why is it that we don't more often picture Jesus with his face, lit up with a smile, with a chuckle, uh, with the, the deep belly laugh emerging from the bottom of his being? Some of you probably do picture Jesus this way. But maybe one of the reasons why many others of us do not picture Jesus like this is that we've been taught again and again and from the earliest age that religion is a very serious business. And of course, on one level, it truly is a very serious business to be a follower of Jesus, to be someone who will one day come into the presence of the almighty God, is to be in the company of one who is perfectly holy when we are not, someone who is perfectly pure and powerful and good when we know that we are are not. And the very thought of an encounter one day in all of its glory and, and power with that kind of God, given who I am and who you are, this ought to sober us up. This ought to give us pause. This ought to drive us to our knees into a place of humility. But many of us, I suppose, suppose have, have drawn the unnecessary conclusion that if religion is a serious business, it must therefore be a solemn one at all times as well. Maybe we grew up under adults who told us that the children uh, shouldn't, should be quiet in church. We should not be uh, uh, ourselves in church. I remember attending uh, the Hillside Church in Armonk, New York growing up, and I don't know why it was. My parents would bring us, we'd go to Sunday school, we would sit in church together for the main worship service, and just as soon as the preacher got up, I was almost always infected with a fit of the giggles. And, and I'd start to crack up, and my sister would start to crack up, and then my brothers would go after that, and, and we, were, it was, we were lost. My dad would have to bring us out of the building sometimes. Um, and I grew up with this very strong sense that this was extremely inappropriate. If you went to a church where people rarely seemed to crack a smile in worship, you could also draw this conclusion that God is a very solemn, sober spirit as well. And so to think of Jesus as a humorous person could seem almost sacrilegious to some of us. Uh, We may view him as grave in speech and dour in expression, somebody who would have agreed with the philosopher Socrates when he said, there must be restraint of unreasonable laughter and tears, and each of us must urge his fellows to consult decorum by utter concealment of all excessive joy and grief. There are churches that operate this way. 
You can't show too much joy. You can't show too much grief. But my question to, the, to you this morning is, is this the Jesus we meet in Scripture? The Jesus we meet in the pages of the Bible and the testimony of the apostles does not appear to be a person of tepid temperament. Why would a man whose ideal is moderation in all things, like Socrates suggested, why would he change 150 gallons of mere water into the finest wine that a wedding party might continue on? Why would he do that? If Jesus thought that faith was mainly about standing rigidly before the Lord, would he picture heaven as he did as a heavenly banquet table? as a place where people came from east and west and north and south with joy to sit at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Would he have described heaven in those terms if religion and faith was really always a sober business? It strikes me as inconceivable that Jesus, whom the religious critics of his day complained was far too comfortable around mere children and just too easygoing around the sinners of the day, had no sense of humor. Do you think that kids and fishermen and bartenders and outcasts and all the other kind of ordinary people that the Bible describes as just flocking to Jesus in a way that they were not flocking to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law of that day, do you think that they would be going to anybody who was not someone whose eyes twinkled, whose face smiled, whose belly laughed at the comedy and the delights of life. Can you imagine it? Can you imagine the popularity of Jesus if he was not a person of profound capacity for joy? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself said that the practice of faith should not make us look somber. We should not hold this kind of soberness as a mark of piety. He once said that the outcome of following him, of opening ourselves to his spirit, was that we would be filled with a more complete joy. In fact, he said at one point to his disciples, everything I've been telling you is that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full, might be complete. So why don't we think more often about the humor of Christ? How many sermons have you heard over the course of your life about the comedy of Christ? Maybe our memory of the cross casts just too heavy a shadow over everything else, that it sort of obliterates our even remembrance of this side of Jesus. Or maybe we've heard his words so very often that, that that's sort of like those coins whose edges grow uh, flat and dull through constant handling. Maybe, maybe the edge of Jesus' personality and humor has kind of go, been lost to us. It's gotten faded to us. So we no longer really feel it. Or maybe we've just been bludgeoned so often by the slapstick or the vulgar humor that pervades the sitcoms and so many of the stand-up routines of our day that we've been desensitized to the more subtle humor of Jesus. Because I will say that the humor of Chris Rock and the humor of Christ the Rock differ somewhat, though both can be very funny. Jesus does not typically 
use a humor that relies on conventional devices like puns or ridicule, as it does so much on careful pairing of images and ideas, contrasts. Jesus doesn't typically seek a laugh for its own sake, but rather seeks to open up the understanding and the uh, reflection of the people he's speaking to. And, and for that purpose, Christ's preferred brand of humor is irony, is irony. Irony is the deliberate exposure of a contrast between the way things are said to be and the way things actually are. The German philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer says that irony is the artful contrast of appearance with reality. Laughter, he says, springs from the sudden perception of incongruities between the superficial and the real. This is what uh, irony is all about. And there are so many of those incongruities in human life, if you think about it. I think of the rural pastor who showed up at church early one Sunday morning to get ready for worship. And as she's driving into the parking lot, she notices something there out in front of the building, something pretty big and gray, and she gets out of her car and she walks over and she discovers to her utter dismay, again, remember this is a country church, that somebody's donkey has wandered out of their pen onto the church property and died right there on the front lawn. Well, this is, this is not good, so she goes into her office immediately. She phones up the police. She said, can you please come and remove this donkey? I've got a dead donkey on my lawn here at the church. And they explain that they, they just have got so much going on, they cannot take care of it right now. And she phones up the police, the uh, fire department, and she meets pretty much with the exact same response. And growing more and more desperate and the worship hour growing closer and closer, she finally decides to phone the mayor. The mayor has run on a platform of being a highly accessible public servant. She thinks, I'm going to get some help from the mayor. So she finds the mayor at home, and at first, he seems to be listening to her very, very carefully. But it turns out that the mayor is something of an irreligious person, and he could not resist giving the pastor a bit of a dig here, and so he said, gosh, preacher, I thought you were the expert in life and death. Aren't you the obvious one to bury the donkey, he said. There was an awkward silence at the end of the line, but the preacher was now fully at the end of her patience, and so she responded, oh, yes, Mayor, I will take care of the jackass. I'm calling you because it's my custom to notify the next of kin. <laughs> the humor of Christ is closer to that kind of humor. It's designed not so much to produce an external guffaw, as it is to produce an inward gaze, to invite the hearer to, to look deeply at themselves for the contrast between what they are espousing and what they are really living. Uh, so like the story of the major or the mayor and the jackass, Jesus' humor is usually aimed at exposing vanity, at, at exposing inconsistency, exposing self-deception. The man has run on a platform of being the helper, and when it comes right down to it, 
is not interested much in helping. So, for example, Jesus says to a judgmental crowd at one point, have you heard the one about the self-proclaimed moral ophthalmologist that was always trying to take the speck out of other people's eyes when it turned out he had a massive cataract in his own eyes? You think he should have been doing surgery? Jesus implies. Or to the Samaritan woman that Jesus meets at the well, he says, go and get your husband. And she replies in apparent virtue, oh, I have no husband, but Jesus knows more. Well, he says, what, you're, what you said to me is technically true. You've had five husbands, and that man that you've been with since the party last week, I know he isn't your husband yet. And she is disarmed by his understanding of what's really going on in her life. And it actually it becomes the turning point for her. And she opens her heart to God at a level she never has before. And that woman leads her entire village to Jesus. Or Jesus says to Peter, whose shifting and undependable ways are well known to Jesus, Christ playfully gives him the name Rocky. The contrast, the irony of that to call that shifting sand blowhard of a guy, Peter, rocky. But it's the humor of that that becomes the incentive and draws Peter in the direction of becoming, in time, the rock of the early church. To the Pharisees who were trying to impress other people uh, by their commitment to prayer and fasting, by covering their faces with ashes and going about with dismal expressions, Jesus says, congratulations, you've gotten exactly what you prayed for. Everybody can tell that you're willing to be miserable for God. And you can imagine the common people laughing. At, yeah, gosh, they make it look so hard. They look at, make it, following God look so miserable. Um, time and time again, we see these kinds of patterns, this twist of sarcasm or satire as Jesus exposes the reality beneath people's appearances and proclamations. Novelist George Meredith described Christ's style in this way, and I love the eloquence of this statement. He said, whenever men and women wax out of proportion, overblown, affected, or pretentious. Whenever they are self-deceived or hoodwinked, given to run riot in idolatries, congregating in absurdities, planning short-sightedly, plotting dementedly, it sounds like a session of Congress, doesn't it? Um, whenever, or maybe some of the social gatherings I've been part of over the years, my apologies. But whenever they are in variance with their professions, and are violating the unwritten but perceptible laws that bind us in consideration for one another, whenever they offend sound reason or fair justice, are false in humility or mind with conceit, whenever this happens, the spirit overhead will humanely malign them and cast an oblique light upon them, followed by veils of silvery laughter." the laughter of God, the challenging, creative, ultimately potentially transforming laughter of God. There's something very vital about the difference 
between Christ's brand of humor and that which often passes for humor in the society we live in today. Christ's humor was never aimed at hurting people, or at least not for more than a moment. It was profoundly aimed at trying to heal people. It was not about vaunting himself over other people. It was about lifting other people up, sometimes the hard way, where they'd been stuck in a position that was, was, was rigid. When he lifted them up using humor, it sometimes hurt. It, it strained them. But it was aimed at elevating them to their appropriate height in life. Sometimes to do his soul surgery on people, Jesus had to let them endure a bit of pain. And how many times in your life, I can speak of moments in my life when pain was what I needed to start waking up, to start thinking afresh, to start settling into a clearer vision of myself and of the circumstances. I think of one particular uh, afternoon in San Diego many, many years ago. I was, it was a Friday. I was preparing to come to church for the worship service on Sunday at the church I pastored there. And uh, I stopped into a, a salon to get my hair cut. It was a place I'd never gone to before. And the stylist observed there that she noticed that I had some gray hairs coming in. I had noticed that I had some gray hairs coming in. And I was feeling very self-conscious about that and, and, and really struggling with the fact that I was, and I was only in my early 30s and I was already starting to, to get gray. Um, and she said to me, have you ever thought of having your hair highlighted? And I said, well, uh, can't say as I have. That was a total lie. I'd thought a lot about it. I was beginning to think this, I have a problem here. I got to figure out a solution. Um, my dad's 87 and still has dark hair. I was really struggling with this. Well, she said, if we just put in a few highlights, it'll cover the gray hair right up. It'll look like you've just been out in the, in the San Diego sun. Uh, would it show really much? Oh, no, 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 no. She said, you'll just look a little bit younger. You'll just look a little bit younger. So about an hour or so later, I, I walked out of that salon with my hair glowing in the dark. I mean, my head pulsed. <laughs> it was something else. <laughs> and the pain of, fake, of facing my congregation on Sunday uh, was nothing, actually, compared to the pain of going the next weekend to a family wedding where I would have to face my brothers. <laughs> the agony of facing their, their ribbing uh, was just really exquisite. Um, but, you know, I tell you the story because it, this was a healing kind of pain for me. Uh, this was a healing kind of pain. I, I think it was exposing for all to see and finally for me to see how much I really was leaning on my superficial things, my appearance, for my sense of vigor and value instead of on what God said about me as his child. Uh, I think Jesus had been laughing since I left that salon. Uh, and I'm sure has laughed many times since. He's not done exposing my vanity and, and the areas of, of growth in my, in my life. Uh, Elton Trueblood, who was for a number of years the chaplain at Harvard University and at, then at Stanford University, once observed this. He said, laughter isn't cruelly humiliating, 
provided that we are all humiliated together. The best kind of comedy, isn't it, is, is the kind where you're in a room with people and, and they poke, uh, he pokes fun at folks and, and everybody squirms for a moment but laughs because they realize we're kind of all in this together. All of us deal with this in some way. And there's some, there's some kind of beauty and goodness that comes from being in a community that can be vulnerable about what still needs fixing in our lives. I often say that church is never meant to be a museum for saints. It's a hospital for sinners. It's meant to be a community of people who are on the way together and who find the courage and the strength to keep going on the way, in part because they're alongside of others who are not so different from them. So many times people will tell me the truth about their life in a private counseling session, and I can see the pain of the humiliation and the vulnerability on their faces. They're telling me their story. And then I, and I say to them, and I, do never, I never give them detail, I promise you, but I, I will often say, if you only knew all the other stories of the people sitting alongside you on a Sunday morning, you would not feel so unsafe. You would not feel so alone. We're all in this together. So here's a question for you. What in your life right now might bring out the laughter of Jesus? What is he seeing as the incongruity between what you're professing, what you're offering as appearance, and, and what's really going on with you? What's the folly he sees in our lives, the incongruity that he sees in our lives? And what would he want us to do with that? How would he want us to turn to him and let him transform that? Uh, the Bible says, and I think it was the prophet Samuel who made the observation, that people look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And the laughter that he inflicts upon us, often as his spirit uses other people to poke holes in the hypocrisy or the pride or the vanity or the surface of our life, this kind of humor is painful, but if we let it, it will change us. It will awaken us. It will help us to move towards greater integrity like few tools in life can. There are various kinds of laughter, I think. Uh, there's the kind that sees the way things are, but there's also the kind that sees the way things can be. And, and in that connection, I just want to return to that story with which we began today from Mark's Gospel, chapter 7. In this particular story, as you may recall, Jesus has gone into a home in Tyre, uh, up in Lebanon. Uh, he is uh, sitting at a table, and a woman has come into the house. She's uh, just sort of broken social convention and entered into the house, and has fallen now at his feet beneath the table. You can imagine the scene here. Everybody's sitting at the table, and there's this woman on the ground at his feet, uh, very upset. Um, and others are kind of looking at her as, as, a, as wondering what is going on here. Um, the woman is wanting uh, uh, Jesus to heal her daughter. She's in a place of desperation. Uh, she is a Syrophoenician, which in Scripture speak means that she was a Gentile. That is to say she was one of those outsiders that, that religious Jews believed stood about as much chance of receiving the grace of God the way the Jews were going to get it as a junkyard dog had of suddenly being presented with a perfectly cooked ribeye steak. The Jews would certainly believe themselves to be in prior, priority order for the grace of God and a, a Gentile like this woman, not even the crumbs 
really. So I picture Jesus with a twinkle in his eye, giving voice to what he knows is actually being thought around the table. They think this woman is a loser, that she shouldn't be there. And, and they're actually miffed by her audacity in coming to this place. And he says to her, uh, voicing their feelings, shall I offer to a mere dog what I have come first to give to the children of Israel? And not missing a beat, the woman who had a passion for what might yet be possible with God. She had met religion. She knew how Jewish people were. She saw something different in Jesus and put her hope in that. And with what, hoping for what might be possible with God, she says, I suspect with a twinkle in her eye, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And I don't think it's, I know it's not printed in the text, but I bet dollars to donuts Jesus laughed. I bet he laughed. And then he said, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. So I have this vision that I want to share with you as we go today. And in the vision that I have, you and I are on our knees like that needy woman at a table. Only this is a big table. This is the ultimate table. This is the table of the living God at the end of time. And, and we're there on the ground, and the legs of that table stretch up so high in a spiritual sense, we can't even see the, the top of it. We hear the, the clamor of the great party that's going on up there somewhere, but we're way down at the ground. We're in the dust and the dirt. We're just sensing the radiant glow of the one who occupies the head seat at that banquet table. And as we're down there on the ground, we see these huge jackboots walking by us. And they are the jackboots of our accuser. They are the jackboots of the one that the Bible calls the enemy. And, and he begins to point us out to the host and to those at the table, and he begins to call out our failures. He's like some demonic prosecuting attorney, and he recounts our sins, all of them. He marks and describes in painful detail every time we spoke inappropriately, every moment we failed to step up when we should have to the call of holiness, every need that we passed by because we were just too accustomed to focusing on our own needs, every time we judged somebody else too harshly, every act of hypocrisy, every secret vice and vanity. He goes through it all because he knows it all and he lists it all and he calls for us to be thrown out of the house as we deserve to be thrown out. And in that moment, having heard that list, we realize we do deserve to be thrown out. And as we begin to, to try and find the gumption to get up and skulk out of that place, we hear the unmistakable sound of a great chair being pushed back from the table. And as we look under the table, we see it's the chair of the host himself. 
and he comes around towards us to our side of the table and he reaches out his hand towards the table and we instinctively cower now, fearing the retribution, the judgment we know should be ours. And with his nail-pierced hands, he begins to scoop mounds and mounds of mouth-watering grace off the table and to you and me till we can't even contain, we can't even consume all of the grace. And the voice of our accuser shrieks, I'm not finished with them yet. And Jesus says, neither am I. And Satan scowls. And Jesus laughs. Would you rise as we join together and sing together this final song?